As we arise this morning to read our sermon passage, you can turn in your Bibles. As always, I hope you have one with you to the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament, and chapter 17 is where we continue our ongoing studies through this wonderful gospel message unto us. And we come today to what I think is the shortest text that we've had so far. And I think we will have in our ongoing study through John's Gospel, is all we want to look at today is verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 17. So uh, let me read those verses for us and, and then pray for God's blessing on our study and we'll begin together. So here now as the Lord does speak to you uh, once again through his, his perfect word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do love your word and we ask that you would lead us this morning by your spirit to meditate on your truth, that you would strengthen us according to your gospel, that you would teach us the way of life in our Savior. In your steadfast love, we pray that you would give us that eternal life that we might know you and love you. In Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I once sat in a seminary class that was taught by a rather famous professor and as these classes tend to go. All of the students were jumping into the room with no small amount of of eagerness. There was this buzzing kind of energy to spend this intensive class, so this week-long number of hours with a professor and learning from him some of the depths of systematic theology. We were so eager to plumb as far down as we could go into the truth of who God is and, and what that meant for us. And By the time the week was done... I think to a student in the class, all of us felt that we had indeed known something, observed something, even experienced something of, of the depths of, of who God is and who Christ is for us. But what we discovered along the way is that some of those depths, if not even the deepest of the depths, were not truths that he communicated to us through his teaching however formidable and and useful that that teaching was. Because what he would tend to do at the beginning of the class each morning, he would start almost with the exact same sentence each day. He would say, let us begin with a word of prayer. And then he began to pray more than just a few mere words. Minutes became more minutes. And those minutes became even more minutes. And by the end of the prayer, though, we felt as though we were privileged to enter this inner sanctuary, this holy of holies as we, frankly, learn more 
about who God is and who Christ is in the midst of his prayers than any book of his we could have ever read. Because maybe you know how it's so true that few things, if any, reveal what a person knows about God, reveal what a person understands and experiences about God than how they pray. That's why some of the old masters of the Protestant tradition would almost, to a man, say something like what a person is on their knees before God. That's what the person is and nothing more. It's in prayer that you discover what lies at the depths of the heart. And that's true, of course, for professors who teach in seminaries. It's true for ordinary Christians like you and me. It's also true, as we're going to see this morning, of our Savior himself. Because when you come to John chapter 17, you come to what's the longest prayer, recorded prayer of Jesus in all of the Bible. It's justly one of the most beloved passages in all of the Gospels. And it's a passage where we find Jesus praying audibly there at the upper room for his disciples, for us, even we'll see today, for himself. And it's as though his heart opens before us because, again, few things unveil a person's heart like what they pray for and how they pray. Martin Luther said of John chapter 17, it's truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer as Christ pours out the depths of his heart. He continued by saying, it sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide that no one can fathom it. And even Luther's eventual successor of sorts, close friend and associate, Philip Melanchthon, and his final lecture he ever gave was, was on this very passage, and he said, there's no voice that has ever been heard, either in heaven or earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer. And if your Bible's anything like mine, you might have a heading there above, John chapter 17, that says, the high priestly prayer. It's commonly understood and rightly understood as this work of intercession that is a high priestly prayer. And it's rich in its Old Testament background because it's true in the Old Testament that what we see about the work of a priest, a high priest, is that what was vital to his ongoing ministry for Israel was, was intercession. That he was a, a man who wore this ephod over his robe and on that ephod were the names of Israel and it was symbolic of him carrying not just in his ministry, but in his praying, carrying the people into the Holy of Holies before the throne of grace and on the great day of atonement. What's actually striking is that the high priest would, would pray, as someone has called, in three concentric circles. He would begin by praying for himself and the ministry that he would perform on that day. Then he would begin to pray for others in the priesthood who would join him in this service. And then he would pray for God's people. And interestingly enough, significantly, uh, Jesus has those same concentric circles in John 17. Because what we're going to see today and in the ensuing weeks is if you just glance down at your Bible, you could even mark this off. Verses 1 through 5, he's praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Lord willing, we'll get there in two weeks. He prays for his disciples, those serving alongside him in the ministry and then the final section, verse 20 through 26, finds him praying for the broader church. Thomas Manton, who was an old English preacher in the 17th century, preached 45 sermons on John chapter 17. 
We're going to preach three. And I'm sure that says something about me. may say something about you too, that we're going to do three. What we want to see this morning is what Jesus prays for himself. And kids, if you, if you notice as I was reading the passage, there's this word or it's kind of cognates that shows up, this word glory five times in five verses. So I want to show you Christ's prayer for glory. That's the, the big idea that I have for you along the way today. Prayer for glory, and I want you to see it in three particular parts. First, we're going to look at, beginning in verse 1, what Jesus wants. So if you look again, verse 1, John tells us as he reports this scene that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. Now, you might be new to us in our ongoing studies of John's gospel, and it is genuinely significant that you understand those words that Jesus just spoke. All the way back in chapter 13, we found out that this was the Passover feast that Jesus had gathered together in an upper room to eat with his disciples. And along the way, as he was talking to them, he told them that the time had come for him to depart. And that news of his pending departure, uh, we've seen in preceding paragraphs over and over, had stirred up no small amount of sorrow and trouble in their soul. And so what Jesus began to speak to his disciples, not only words of instruction, not only proclamation even about who he is and his relationship with the Father, they were they were words that were meant to comfort his disciples. And he said, actually, it's to your advantage that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who is the comforter, who's going to guide you into all truth, who's going to direct you in how you are to glorify me, that comforter is going to come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he promised the disciples even further, you will have tribulation in this world. But he said, take heart. Because I have overcome the world. That's the last sentence of of what he said in chapter 16. And so I think it's actually right for us to say, following the greatest sermon ever preached, he gives us the greatest prayer that's ever prayed. And you'll notice how it begins in verse 1 as he continues, Father, the hour has come. It's a significant statement in John's gospel because all the way back in chapter 2, we began to hear this phrase about the hour coming in Jesus' life and ministry. Students, you might remember some of these stories that we've seen in preceding months of our studies, all the way back in chapter 2, for example. Uh, Jesus is at a wedding feast. The wine runs out, and you remember his mother comes to him and basically says, do something about the wine. And, And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Chapter 4, he's sitting with the woman at the well, and he says, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Chapter 5, as he's speaking with the religious leaders and the Israelite people there listening in, he says, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. He kept preaching in such a way that by the end of of chapter 7, the religious leaders are ready to kill him. And you might remember He escapes easily. It's just like he slips effortlessly out of their grasp. Why? Well, John tells us his hour had not yet come. And now he's saying what? My hour has come. Which we know in the course of this gospel is time for him to die. And it's perhaps maybe even encouraging you to recognize even for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he was utterly immortal until it was time for him to fulfill the purpose for which he came. And that's true, isn't it? For every single person called according to his purpose. 
you are utterly immortal (laughs) until you fulfill the purpose that God has created you for. He knows every single one of your days. He has every single one of your hours lined out. He knows the precise second that you're going to pass away if Jesus doesn't come back. You are going to fulfill the purpose for which he created you until your hour comes. And this hour coming is not just something that has been on its way in the Gospel of John. I want you to know that this is something that redemptive history ever since Genesis has been barreling forward unto. Because in Genesis chapter 3, didn't the Lord promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent? And then throughout the Old Testament, as the books span forward, what do we see? Leaders coming and going, kingdoms rising and falling, exodus and exile, types and shadows that are nothing more than birth pains to give rise to this hour. And what does Jesus want as he stares into that cursed cross of Calvary? What does he long for most? Notice how he says in that central climactic petition, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. My kids, if you've grown up in a church, I trust that one like Redeemer has used this word glory quite a bit. We need to understand actually what what that word means if we're to understand what Jesus longs for. We might even say is desperate for in that trying hour that's soon to come that he would know glory from God. The word's used, of course, all over the place in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, it's just originally a word that speaks of weight. It focuses on heaviness. In the ancient world, if, if you were to look at a king's glory, you, you would look at what he's wearing. Crown, flowing, beautiful robes, jewelry that would be dangling off of him. It was as though he was weighed down with glory in his majesty and splendor. And that nature of being clothed with glory is actually what Jesus wants. If you skip down to verse 5, it's the same petition, isn't it? Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before he came, born of a virgin, took on the humiliation of the form of a servant. He was, of course, glorified from eternity past and he longs to be clothed again with that glory. But what you need to see, actually, as these petitions and even chapters spin forth, his mind clearly is focused on the glory that he would receive from the Father on that cursed tree outside of Jerusalem. Maybe you haven't thought about it this way before, and we can mean this uh, reverently, that the cross is the great pulpit of God's glory of the Son's glory? Because consider what is proclaimed from that pulpit. But the everlasting mercy of a Savior who lovingly and willingly will die for sinners like you and me. What does it proclaim also? The glorious wrath and justice of God that sin deserves, that falls upon Jesus, that he willingly will bear into himself so great and so glorious is this wrath and justice that the world goes dark around Jesus. Doesn't it proclaim also the glory of Jesus in his obedience, his perfect law-keeping, that he can spill forth blood perfect and precious that can atone for sinners like you and me? What he's asking for is not strength to endure the trial. What he's asking for is not even escape from the coming horror. 
What is he asking for? What does Jesus want? Glorify me so that I might glorify you. Well, notice secondly what Jesus gives. He continues, you notice verse 2. Since you have given him all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It's a simple statement, isn't it, about the sovereignty of Jesus and the theological logic? It's simple. Everyone who's ever lived belongs to Jesus in his authority. But only some who have ever lived belong to Jesus in his saving power and gracious gift of eternal life. He's saying that he rules over all people, but there are some sovereignly given to him by the Father, and it's to those that he gives eternal life. And what's eternal life? Well, Jesus' simple, almost catechetical definition, notice verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It was actually 50 years ago, believe it or not, some of you will understand when I say believe it or not, that an Anglican theologian named J.I. Packer published a book that became his best-selling classic work, selling over a million copies, and it almost became synonymous with his name. And when he put the book together, he didn't have any optimism that it would sell many copies, let alone over a million copies. He grabbed a few different uh, articles that he had written for what's now a defunct evangelical magazine, and he he threw it together in a book, and he said in a later forward to the book that he had little hope of general interest in the subject. And that book was titled, Knowing God. And what not everybody knows or even remembers about that best-selling book is that it begins in the first chapter copying and pasting a few words from a 20-year-old preacher in London named Charles Spurgeon, who said this, The highest science... The loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. And he goes on to say, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Now I wonder how many of you 20-year-olds can say something like that. How many of you, 80-year-olds, can say something like that? None of us have such power and eloquence to say anything like that. But I do trust that you can sincerely say, this is eternal life. That I know God, and I know his son, Jesus Christ. Because, of course, what Jesus is pointing to here is, is something more than just mere knowledge of his character in person. We're not talking about the kind of research that generates knowledge. However, even useful and I suppose even necessary such research into Christ might be. It's not just this ritualistic kind of obedience to religious rules that brings knowledge of Jesus. We're talking about this experiential overflow of a heart that's been subdued by his majesty, a mind that's captivated by his mercy, a soul that's stirred by his, by his glory. I suppose maybe the simplest way to illustrate it would be the difference that we have in reading biographies versus knowing the subject of the biography. I mean, students, I don't know what courses you like in school. My favorite always was history. 
And my, my favorite way to continue to learn history is just through biography. But of course, I can only know so much about that person from biography to such a degree I can say, I don't really know that person personally and intimately. But Jesus says, here, you can know, not just me, you can know God the Father personally and intimately. And that's what it means to have eternal life. And I suppose it's even necessary that we note, if you again look at verse 3, it's know God, who is the only true God, and Jesus Christ. We know by this point in John's gospel that there's no such thing as knowing the Father apart from knowing the Son. All worship of God that doesn't include worship of Christ is just vain idolatry. All hopes outside of Jesus Christ are pointless ambitions and desires. Isn't it true even heaven without Christ is but a pale and pointless paradise? Do you know Jesus? Because he himself knows that many don't. If you skip down in your eyes to the end of this chapter, look what he says in verse 25. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Do you know him and the eternal life that, of course, he alone can give? What does Jesus want? He wants glory from God. What does Jesus give? The eternal life of God. Maybe thirdly, we can just simply say what Jesus does. You look what he says in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And we know even by this point, don't we, children, that he hasn't fully and finally accomplished the work that was given him to do. Die on the cross for sinners. But at this point, when he's only the night before, only hours before staring into what is coming on the way with his pending death, it's so certain that he's going to achieve salvation for his people that he can say, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Everything to this point, perfect obedience. Everything coming from this point, exactly what you told me to do so often In John's gospel, we've seen, haven't we, Jesus will use language like his chief delight. His his glorious food, even spiritually speaking, is to do the Father's will. And he's going to do the Father's will perfectly. That's why Jesus is the only person who's ever lived that can say these words. I have accomplished the purpose for which you sent me. Maybe you feel like I often do. You look back on days, months, years. And you realize that in some ways, at least from a certain perspective, they feel nothing more than a record of not accomplishing what I was supposed to do. Sins and failures that deserve God's justice and punishment. That's why this is such good news. He has accomplished perfectly everything that he was supposed to do. So people like you and me, that have so often not accomplished that purpose for which we were created, can actually receive eternal life. What does he do? What does he continue doing? Accomplishing the purpose of glorifying God in all things. That's a glorious prayer, the way he introduces it. I want you to see also it's, it's more than that for people like you and me. You know, I mentioned earlier on, it's true throughout church history, you've had so many 
well-known preachers, ministers, have an unusual attachment to this chapter. And another one of those preachers was a man named John Knox. He, in the 16th century, in many ways, was like the founder of Scottish Presbyterianism, a rather stunningly powerful preacher. Well, when he's 58 years old, 1572, he contracts pneumonia. And in November of that year, it's clear to all that he's beginning to die. So one day, he's gathered around his bedside, his wife and his closest friend Robert, his wife Margaret and friend Robert. And as the story goes, John Knox looked over at Margaret and said, you know, grab the Bible. And he said, quote, go, go to the place where I first cast my anchor. She knew exactly what he was saying, which maybe it's his own perhaps Probing reality for couples, if a spouse was to say to you on your deathbed, go to that place where I first cast my hanker, would you know where to turn? Well, where does she turn? She knows, Margaret, exactly where John Knox wanted her to turn, which is John 17. She read slowly, patiently, about the Lord's prayer for himself, the Lord's prayer for his disciples, and of course the Lord's prayer for his church. And then, supposedly, according to at least one account, the last dying words of John Knox were nothing more than, oh, what a comfort that chapter is. And it's true. Jesus' ministry, ever since chapter 13, particularly these disciples, has been little more than to give what to his people? Comfort. He's given them comfort in his instruction. He's given them comfort in some gentle rebukes. He's given them comfort in his promises. He's now giving them comfort, what? And getting to be an audience that listens to what a Savior prays for his people. It was rather normal at this time, certainly in Jewish culture, for someone to do what Jesus did according to verse 1, which is lift up his eyes to heaven, maybe even lifting up his arms and praying audibly. But certainly part of the glory that belongs to us, the comfort that we can receive from Jesus' prayers, that we know precisely what he prayed because he prayed it out loud for our comfort. So as we close, what I want to do is just give you three simple comforts from the glorious prayer of Christ in our five-verse text. The first is this, the comfort of his urgency. You need to feel, hear, and even experience the urgency of Jesus as he's staring into Calvary. Father, the time has come. Glorify me. Do you know that the Bible will later on say in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people? Do you know know a Savior who's as urgent on that night in the upper room to pray for himself and his people is so urgent to pray for you today? He knows precisely those anxieties that haunt your heart, those concerns you carry in your soul, and he's urgent To pray for you. That's why an old pastor who I once loved knew this. And in a little journal where he's talking about wanting to study the subject of Christ's intercession more. He said, oh, if I could hear him praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. He said, nevertheless, he is praying for me. As it were, in the next room. Do you know what comfort might flood into your life today? If you would know this, Jesus Christ, this very day, this very hour is praying for you urgently. It's not just prayer that gives us the comfort of urgency. It's also the comfort of a singularity. Because look again, verse 1 at the end, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
It's all about the end for which God created the world. Jesus' desire and desperate hope and want in this moment to glorify God. He came to glorify God. You were created, weren't you, for that same purpose, to glorify God? You know, kids, maybe the easiest way I could speak to you about this is every Friday night at the Stone House. You know, we make pizza, homemade pizza, to go along with our movies and something of a strange stone tradition is we also make Daddy's Rice Krispies, which means we just make a Rice Krispie recipe that I invented, that I like, that we throw whatever candy's left over from Halloween into. And depending on the week, one of the kids get to decide what goes into the Rice Krispie treats. Now, we have created pizza and dessert. For what purpose? To be consumed. You have been created for a purpose. To be consumed with a passion for God's glory. And even that singularity of Jesus helps us understand his ongoing intercession and prayers for us. Do you want to know what he's praying for you now? Even in heaven? Certainly, there's nothing more glorious that you can think about is how he is praying that you would glorify God in your current circumstance and situation. Some of you in here are suffering. You can trust he's praying that your suffering would lead you to glorify God evermore as you trust in his ongoing faithful goodness towards you. Maybe even in the midst of loss, in the hour of temptation, how is your Savior praying for you? but that you would glorify God by resisting and walking in holiness. In your time of need, what is your Savior praying for you? That you would glorify God and rely on Him alone to be faithful to promises that He has given to you. There's comfort in His urgency, His singularity. We can also say finally, can't we? There's comfort in His certainty. You must love the words, I trust, of verse 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's certainty that he alone can give. So how will you walk away from a service and a sermon like this with all those anxieties? With all those certainties, uncertainties, with all those burdens, with all those sins? Well, he longs for you to walk away this day. And the certainty of eternal life. Because you know the Father. And you know him. He who is a glorious praying Savior. Let's pray together. Father we simply ask this day that by your mercy and sovereign grace you would. Minister the comfort of Christ to our hearts that we might know him evermore, love him evermore, and glorify him evermore, that you would be made mighty and majestic in our lives. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together.